And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. So 1 Thessalonians. If you go to your New Testament and you hit like Timothy or Colossians, you're getting really close to 1 Thessalonians. For any of you who may be new to the Bible, Thessalonians is a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the church or the churches in the city of Thessalonica. And so that's why it's named Thessalonians. Uh, so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes this after he has um, kind of gone through the first three chapters of just encouraging uh, the church, also telling them about, like, instructing them in his apostolic ministry. Uh, he jumps into chapter four with specific instruction to the church. And so he, he, he states this. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more, that you would actually never stop in this process of going ever deeper with the Lord, learning how to walk with him, learning how to please God, that you would do so more and more. The Apostle Paul states, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul's not saying this was his own ideas. It was from the Lord Jesus. And, and what is the content? What is the specific content that Paul is admonishing them and at, ur, urging them uh, after? Well, he states in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not, and this is an important phrase, not in the passions of lust. That, that is such a churchy kind of word, uh, but we'll explain more specifically exactly what that means. That has incredible practical meaning for us. Um, that you are not to be given to the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into these things. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that so often your word is a balm to us. It is, a, um, it is, it is truth that that gives us life. It revives our soul. But God, also we are grateful that you, you speak plainly to us about exactly what is good for us. So even when we find ourselves going back to the very things that you say, no, I don't want you to be given to, um, God, that you, you provide these warnings. But you don't provide these warnings without providing incredible grace. And so God, we... We want to learn. We want to learn. We want to understand why it is that so oftentimes we take our will back and we want to learn how we stop that process so that we might more fully surrender ultimately to you. As the one who we have seen is the one worthy of building our life upon, the one who alone can truly satisfy the deep longings of our heart. Lord, we, we just confess right now, we need you even though oftentimes we find ourselves kind of wandering away, seeking after the things that you've rescued us from in hopes that in some way that'll, those things will give us satisfaction. But God, we, we want our focus set upon you. We want our hearts satisfied in you. So help us, help us to understand our hearts and help us to understand how we might keep our focus upon you. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
The, the questions that we're going to cover this morning are, are simply this. Why do I keep taking my will back? And how do I stop? Uh, maybe, maybe for some of you, you're not exactly familiar with the idea of taking your will back, exactly what that means. Well, in the 12 steps, we, we find that you, know, you, you are to admit that you're powerless, your life has become unmanageable because of the addiction that is going on in your life. And, and, and then secondly, it's that we come to believe that God can restore us. But then third, it's that we surrender our will to God. Now, those, those are incredibly biblical statements, right? But even for us who have come to faith in Jesus, who've come to know something of, of his restorative power, why is it that we still find ourselves going back and doing the things we even at times don't want to do? It's as though we give our, we take our will back even after having surrendered to the Lord, after knowing all that he's done for us, after even uh, experiencing something of the work of his spirit within us and the satisfaction that he brings to our souls. Why is it that we still keep taking our will back and how do we stop? Now, even when I think about my, my own life, I can, I can see points and places in, in my life where, man, it was, whether it was like late teens struggling with sexual addictions, right, where, where it was just like, I know I don't want to do this. I know that this is going to be uh, tasteless and I'm going to feel the guilt and shame of it on the other end. And yet there is this draw that, Man, I'm, I'm taking my will back. I'm doing the very things that I know I shouldn't be doing. Or early 20s when it came to alcohol. It was, I know, I know this party. I know this experience. I know drunkenness is just going to leave me on the other end, actually more empty than where I started. And I would know, I would know, this is not going to satisfy. This will not satisfy my heart. And yet I'd find myself doing it again and doing it again and doing it again even as one who's come to know Jesus, right? Even as one who's, who's experienced some of his restorative power, the satisfaction that he brings to our hearts and lives. Why is it that we take our will back? And how is it that we stop? Why, why do we pick up another cigarette? Why do we go back to that substance? Why do we go back to that comfort eating? Why do we go back to those destructive relationships? Why do I go back to that porn page again? Why do we seem to continually to take our will back, even when we know that those things are so empty and actually leave us worse off than before? These are the questions that I believe Paul answers in chapters 4, 1 through 8. But before diving in and answering those questions of why we take our will back and how we stop doing that, we, we must recognize what Paul is declaring, specifically in verse 2 and 8. Paul's instructions in these verses, he is adamant about the fact that it's not just his suggestions, it's not just Paul's own little wisdom that you can kind of take or leave. He says very specifically, verse 2, that these are instructions that have come by the authority of Jesus Christ. This is God's heart for you. This is, we could say these are God's, and I hope this falls on your heart correctly, these are God's demands for you. That the idea even of the instructions, the term there, these instructions that have come by the authority of Christ, it's a military term. In other words, it's instructions that have come from the top down. The four-star general, these are your marching orders, right? This has come from Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. And then verse 8, Paul can say, because it's from Jesus, whoever disregards this actually disregards not man but God. And so we have to take what is said here very soberly, right? We have to slow down and say, okay, this is not just kind of some wisdom living, seven better ways to live a nice, wonderful life, a more successful life. No, this comes directly from the top, directly from Jesus. It is Jesus' demands upon us. 
But I also want you to realize that these are God's demands upon his people, but God never demands something that he doesn't himself supply to us. So whatever commands or demands he places on us, he, he places grace there, enablement, to actually accomplish what he sets before us. And what God demands of us and what he supplies to us of his grace is actually for our joy. God is not a killjoy in what he's about to give to us this morning in his word. He's not trying to place burden upon our backs. He is desiring to set us free. The instructions here are for our joy. What God demands of us, he supplies to us, and he does so for our joy. So let that lay something of the context as we enter into answering these two questions. Why do I take my will back and how can I stop? The first reason why we take our will back is because as a child of God, as someone who's come to faith in Jesus, I am in process, right? So just to give you a little context to the passage, Thessalonica was a port city. And it was located on the northern shore of the Aegean Sea. And in Acts 17, we actually find that Paul ministers in this particular city, but it's these Jews then that don't like what Paul is doing. So they start what is a citywide riot against Paul. And so for Paul's safety, he leaves Berea. Now, some folks had come to faith in Jesus during this time of Paul's ministry. And so what Paul does is he's actually leaving behind some young Christians in this city of Thessalonica. And Paul has to go on to Berea and begins doing other ministry. Now, he's writing this particular letter, perhaps upwards of a year and a half later, after hearing reports of how the church was doing. And so he begins by saying, verse 1, finally, brethren, right? He's referring to them as the family of God. You're you're children of God. You've come to faith in Jesus. Now you're on the end of what God is doing. You're a part of the family, right? And he says then, we ask and urge you in verse 1, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, that's the past, that's when he first ministered to them, as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. Right? The reason, folks, that we continue to battle and even at times take our will back is because we are in an ever-growing process, in an ever-growing process in relationship to the Lord. Paul's writing, once again, upwards of a year and a half later, he's saying the same things that he originally said to them, and he's doing it so that they would grow more and more in Christ. And notice how he goes on to explain this growth in verse 1. He refers refers to it as, as learning how to walk and to please God. To walk is kind of like the, the picture you might think of as a little infant there, you know, who's, who's just learning to get the legs underneath of them and they're a little bit wobbly. And, and yet it's the father who comes down and holds his hand out to that little child who's learning to walk. And yes, there's, there's, there's falls, but there the father is to pick them up. Yes, there's tumbles, but there the father is to pick them up. The walk that Paul is speaking of here is is akin to this idea of this relationship with God where God is saying, come on and walk toward me. Come and learn my ways. And as you fall and as, as you tumble, he's there with his arms to pick you up. Paul is saying this, this is the growing process of the Christian life. It's like a walk or it's like a military march. You see all those Uh, you know, groups of soldiers together, and they're in this perfect aligned march. That's that's another illustration for how this kind of relationship with God is to work. We're to learn how to keep in lockstep with the orders and desires of God. And so the Christian life is, is like a walk, or he says it is the act of pleasing God. The Christian life is not just to be kind of pleasant before God, do our religious duties, and hopefully he's happy with me. That's not the idea. The idea is that we would make God's pleasure 
our number one ambition, that our life would not be fundamentally about my pleasures or the pleasures of others, but it would be about the pleasure of God. We could simply say then that this idea of the walk and pleasing God is the ongoing process of learning how to surrender our will to Him, learning how to walk in His ways, learning how to live for His pleasure and not my own. It's the ongoing process of learning how to submit your will to Him and doing so, as Paul says, more and more. Now, one more point to this is that Paul states in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for you, like... Instead of all the circumstantial, what is God's will for me? He says, this, this you know for sure. This is objective. This isn't a mystery. This is what you can know for absolute surety. It is that God's will is for you sanctification. The idea of sanctification is just what we're talking about. It's this idea of slowly but surely in relationship to God, having more and more of your life conformed and arranged to Him, set apart to Christ. So even Scripture would recognize that this growth in relationship to God is a process. It's a learning curve. We're learning how we submit our will to Him. We're learning how we surrender our pleasures to ultimately pursue God's pleasure, what pleases Him. So folks, part of the reason why we take our will back is because we are in a relational, sanctifying process with Jesus. And, and the point then is, is take it as a word of encouragement. You, you never received God's grace by your own achievements. That was done completely, fully through Christ's achievements. And therefore, when it comes to these points of failure, when it comes to these points where, I, oh man, I've gone back to this thing again, you can know in a real way that your position with God has not been hindered. Your justification with God has not been hindered. Oh, is there sanctifying work to be done? Is there growth in godliness to be worked on? Absolutely, but you should recognize that God is saying, I get, I get that this is a process. I get that at times you're going to stumble. I get at times you're going to fall. And my grace will be there. You didn't come into my family. You were not determined to be mine by your own achievements. And therefore, you can't undo that by your failings. God says, I have you. And so for every tumble, for every failing, he is there for us. He recognizes that this is a process that this is a growing process in relationship to him. Now, that's part of the reason why we take our will back, because we are in process, but also because as a child of God, I am a worshiper. In verse 3, the specific struggle, or we could even say the specific relapse that Paul is addressing is this sexual immorality. The, the term sexual immorality is a junk drawer term uh, for any kind of sexual interaction outside of the covenant of marriage. Now, this is so popular, like in our day, to be talking about something like this. For many of us, we, we hear sexual immorality, and God's calling this a sin, like, you gotta be kidding me. Once again, this is, this is not just kind of Paul's idea. This is not just kind of wisdom living. This is what God demands. This is what God says will be best for you. What will be best for you is that any and all sexual interaction remains within the covenant of marriage. And therefore, anything outside of that... God says it's sexual immorality, it's sin, everything from the one night stands to looking at porn, to shacking up, to sexting, and whatever other creative things that you can figure out to throw into that junk drawer, it's in God's eyes sexual immorality. But notice, more to the point, what is beneath this struggle or this relapse? Why is it that 
this church is struggling with this particular issue of sexual immorality? Well, he says in verse 4 that at core this is a matter of disciplining ourselves in honor and holiness versus being driven, and here's the word that we got to see, being driven by the passions of lust like those who do not know God. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that at a fundamental level, we are worshipers. The word lust that's used here means over-desire. We, we could actually rightly render that word as meaning it's a God-sized desire. The Greek word is epithumia. Epi means over and abundant. Thumia means desire. And so it's this God-sized desire that Paul is, is speaking about. It's these passions of lust that lead to this sexual immorality. In other, word, in other words, it's these longings or passions that are driving this God-sized desire, assuming that something of these sexual interactions will actually satisfy me in ways only God can. Paul will outright then use these same words, the passions of lust, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and he will summarize it by saying it's idolatry. It's a worship disorder to think, to hope, to desire that a sexual experience or anything else for that matter is going to satisfy the God-sized desires of our hearts. It's why then Paul will even emphasize the fact that they don't know God. They have not come to know the depths of relational intimacy and satisfaction that can only come from God at core then, this relapse is all about worship. It's all about thinking, desiring, hoping that something else will be my God in the moment. That it will satisfy the God-sized desires of my heart in the moment. So at core, this relapse, the taking of one's will back, is the idea of this Worship disorder, it's idolatry that think, to think that anything other or anything less than God can actually satisfy the deep longings of my heart. And re remember, idolatry, this worship disorder, is, is enslaving. It's not just going to kind of tease you for a moment. It's going to keep you there. And that's why Paul is actually having to repeat himself. He's already instructed the Thessalonians about these things in the past. And now he finds a year and a half later, guess what he's got to do again? He's got to instruct them in these things all over again. When it comes to this idolatry, this worship disorder of the heart, it is something that inevitably enslaves us. Right? We will inevitably drift into it. It will inevitably call us to it. Idolatry is a bait-and-hook experience. Idols speak alluring promises that will only ultimately rot the soul. There's something of enticement, yes. There's something of experience that awaits, yes but you don't see the hook that keeps you coming back, developing, as we said before, these patterns, these life liturgies that become remarkably difficult to break. So while there's an experience, while there's a hook of enslavement to that experience, it leaves you unsatisfied. And there we find, as, as Proverbs says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. It's trusting that something else besides God can satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. We take our will back because we are worshipers. We believe that something else in the moment can satisfy what only God can satisfy. So maybe we could summarize it this way. Why do we take our will back, at least from this text? Obviously, when it comes down to it, there are, there are many things that we could add to this, but I think this stands at the core. Why do we take our will back? Well, because as children of God, you're in the process of growing in relationship to God, but the process of growing in this relationship is a war of worship. 
As children of God, you are in the process of growing in relationship to God, but the process of growing in this relationship is a war of worship. So, the next question, how do we stop? (laughs) How do we stop taking our will back? How do we actually go from, yes, I'm I'm seeing that I'm, I'm enslaved to something, I'm seeing that I keep on going back to this thing. How do I stop? Well, first and foremost, just as we were saying, by worshiping God. Like like we've said earlier in our series, we worship our way into addiction and we are to worship our way out. Now notice how Paul says it in verse 4. He says that each of us should know how to control his body in holiness and honor. And then he says, unlike those who don't know God. We should know how to control our bodies, unlike those who don't know God. He's he's using the same Greek word in both of those moments, right? That each of us would know how to control his body, unlike those who don't know God. In other words, knowing God will lead to wanting to control your sexual desires. Knowing God leads leads to knowing how to control your body. Thomas Chalmers, an old Puritan uh, pastor, he he wrote a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he demonstrates in that sermon that the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. And the idea behind that is this war of worship. It's a war for glory. Who's going to get primary position within the heart? In other words, the affections and the deepest desires of our heart are determined by what we believe has the great or weight of glory or worth. So whatever is going to have sway upon my heart is what I believe is the greatest worth, the greatest glory. Right? And it's not enough to just look at the worthlessness or the destructiveness of my desires. Like, oh, I keep going back to this thing knowing that it's going to be empty. So if I just convince myself that these things are empty, well, then I'll be changed. Then I'll be set free. No, no, no. What Thomas Chalmers is saying, no, it's a knowing of God. You need a greater weight of glory to displace those lesser degrees of glory. You need a new affection that will replace the old affection. And so what does he propose? Well, he proposes that when Christians apprehend the greater glory of Christ, it's like dropping a weight into a cup of water that displaces that water. It's the greater weight of Christ that ultimately will undo and displace the old affections. So it's this worship that we must be about. This worship, I got to get to know Christ. I got to get to know who he is and and what is in him that is of greater worth and glory. What is in him that satisfies the deep longings of my heart and soul. I got to get my heart set upon the greater glory of Christ. Folks, when it comes down to it, The way we stop sinning, the way we stop taking our will back is to get our gaze upon Christ. True change will come through Godward worship, where we get to know him, where we get to explore the greater glory uh, that alone can displace the old affections of our hearts and our lives. Folks, and this may seem kind of like superficial. Well, Jesus is just Jesus to me. I read about him and there's, there's no difference. Oh, folks, like if that's your Jesus, you got the wrong Jesus. He is one to be experienced. He is one to be known. He is one that, that comes to us and says, I want a relationship with you and I'm going to define you and I'm going to give you purpose and I'm going to give you meaning and I'm going to bring you into my mission. I'm going to do all of this for you. He is a 
interactive God. He's a relational God. He's a covenantal God. So as we step into worship, it's not a one-way street. There's interaction. He comes and ministers to us as we minister to him, as we set our eyes on him, maybe even at times where our heart doesn't want to. I don't want to set my heart on him. I, I'm seeing these other things to be more enticing in the moment. I don't want to set my eyes on Jesus. He says, oh, come and set your eyes on Jesus. And if you give him worship, if you set your affection on him, you set your eyes upon him, he will bring change. These things will be proven to be weightless as they are as we throw our gaze upon Christ, who ultimately is the greater weight of glory who can bring change to our hearts. I know one particular story where it was a, a guy struggling with pornography. And, and you know, he, he's, he's calling up his pastor and he's saying, hey man, I'm, I'm feeling these temptations right now and like, I'm going to do it kind of a thing. And, and the pastor's like, will you stop calling me? I'm not your Jesus. Like, to, to, to be calling to me is like a nice practical thing that you can do in order to bring people into your struggles, so to speak. But ultimately, your, your gaze shouldn't be on me. You better start worshiping Jesus, thanking him for the forgiveness that he's going to offer you after you do what you're going to do. And the response from this guy was, well, if that's the case, then I'm not, I probably won't do, I won't do it. Like, if, if I give my gaze to this forgiving God, this one who's satisfied, this one who promises my forgiveness, then, then, then I probably won't do it. And that's the point. The point is to get your gaze on this Jesus. And folks, he's, he's not far from you. It's not as though this is like some grand battle, some grand, you know, journey that we have to go find him out. He's hidden in plain sight waiting for you to just come to him to explore the beauty of who he is and obviously going to his word and seeing the objective principles of his nature and who he is and what he affords me. Folks, that's where we go. And so when it comes down to it, true change will happen through worship. True change comes through Godward worship. 2 Corinthians 3.18, if you, if you want a te another text to slap onto that, obviously it's, it's that familiar passage, as we behold him, we're changed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. He just says, come behold me. Come set your affection on me. Come set your gaze upon me. And you will be changed. Folks, when it comes down to it, what, whatever we behold is what we become. Even there, there's a psalm in the Old Testament that talks about this, that the, these people who worshipped idols, you know, these figurines, you know, became just like those figurines. They became blind. They became deaf. They became insensitive. They lost, in other words, their, their, their true perception of life and truth, that they couldn't hear what was true, and they lost their emotional vitality. They became like the very thing they were worshipping. And that's what happens as we give our hearts away to these lesser gods. We become like them. Our, our eyes become scaled to really seeing the greater glory of Christ. And Christ is saying, come behold me. And in beholding me, you will become like me. You will understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So on one hand, folks, it's all about worship. And I, man, I could get stuck on this for a while, so i got to be careful. Um, even as we sang earlier, you know, we sang about being a, a child of God. Children don't care what they look like when they're coming after mom or dad. They don't care. They don't come with defense mechanisms. They don't come with self-preservation strategies and tactics. They come as, are, as they are. Broken, hurting, crying, whatever it is. They don't care. They come as children, vulnerable. They bring all their shame. They bring all their difficulties. They bring it to mom and dad. Because they know mom and dad receives them as they are. This is worship. God says, come to me. Come to me. I, 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 I know more about you than you know about yourself and your brokenness and your hurt and your bruises. 
and your difficulties. And he says, you, you don't belong with me because of the things you've done or failed to do. You belong with me because of what has Christ has done for you. So come to me vulnerably. There, there's nothing to hide. That's why Jesus will say to the Samaritan woman, it's the worship comes by spirit and truth. That it happens on a spiritual le level. It's empowered by the spirit, but it, it comes by truth, which means you come as you are, not as some sort of facade, as some sort of, you know, trying to just make things kind of seem like everything's okay. No, come in truth. Come as you are. Come in your brokenness. Come in your weakness. Come in your challenges. Come with your temptations. Come with your shame and bring it before Jesus. Get your eyes upon him. And let him tend to you. Worship is a two-way street where we set our eyes on him even when we may not want to, and he comes and ministers to his own. How do we stop taking our will back? Well, by going to war through worship. So folks, uh, there's so much to learn here as a church. I'm hoping even this summer we can get into some of these things um, but there is so much more to this idea of worship that we need to press into. Learning and understanding what it means to be a people of vulnerable worship. How else? How else do we stop taking our will back? Well, second, as the text says in verse 6, by acknowledging God's warnings. Um, God's warnings, folks, are meant to instill a healthy fear in us so that we might run to Jesus, right? So often in our culture right now, the millennial culture, like, don't bring any criticism my way. Don't give me any warnings. You know, I'm going to live the life I, I want to live the way I, I, I want to live it. And if you bring any criticism or warning against me, you know, it, it, it's this recoiling effect that takes place. Like, how dare, how dare you warn me? I think this has seeped into the church where we don't like the warnings that God gives us because we, we, we begin to get all theological. Well, are you saying that like, as the, even the text says, that Jesus is an avenger of those who give themselves to this issue of sexual immorality? So are you saying he's going to bring like the wrath on me that he actually saved me from? We get into these goofy theological uh, kind of arguments. But the point of all of this is to give us a warning so that we might run to Jesus. So what are the warnings that he outlines here? He, he commands us not to, verse 6, transgress or wrong one's brother in this matter. It, it, literally, the idea is exploiting another person, whether it's a friend, a brother and sister in Christ, or even if it's pornography, where statistically we find that, as one counseling agency says, quote, it destroys life-sustaining relationships. It's using another, even perhaps by screen, to satisfy your God-sized desires. You won't run to God, but you'll exploit others. And so he's warning us. He's warning, don't be given to these things because ultimately it's going to bring harm upon others, not to mention harm upon yourself. And then he ratchets up this warning by stating, and by the way, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We just can't skim across it. We can't just turn our eyes from that kind of statement. Paul is clear. In, in chapter 1, verse 10 of this, this letter, Paul will actually state that we have been saved from the damnation to come. In chapter 5, verse 9, he'll, he'll state a little bit later that we are not destined for wrath. But here, he confronts us with the fierce vengeance of God. It is strong language that is to wake up the unresponsive Christian who would continually take back his or her will. Folks, God is not slow to discipline his own. And we just got to get good with some of this. James will say it's these kind of sins that is actually the reason why some in the church are sick. Paul will say it's why some in the church are sick and have died. 
It's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul will actually bring up the sexual immorality that happened in the Exodus account and state 23,000 died in a single day as a result of God's judgment upon them. It's why Jesus will say in the Gospels, if your hand offends you, cut it off. The call is to get radical about dealing with your sin. The call is to wake up and then get radical about dealing with your sin. It's time to declare war on your sin. It's time to kill sin or sin in some sense will be killing you. God takes these things very seriously, but he does so for our good. Folks, even when it comes to the warnings of Scripture, let them cause you to run hard, hard after Christ. And you will find, you will find that he has incredible mercy. Don't dismiss his warnings. We could even say, make your, as Scripture says, make your calling and election sure. Go after Christ all the more. Run to him. Affirm your salvation. Don't deny the reality of your salvation. No, act upon it. Take advantage of it. Run hard after Christ. Now, the third way in which we stop taking our will back is by claiming his promises. Verse 7 and 8, finally. How do you stop taking your will back? Well, by claiming his promises. Verse 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In other words, when God calls us to salvation, he's calling us to this life of growing in holiness. Holiness, this, this process of learning how to surrender to him, how to worship him, how to give our will over to him, is what he actually saved us to. He saved us to this process of ever growing in this holiness, of ever growing in this sanctification, and ever growing in this relationship with him. But notice now, in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 23, Paul will state something wonderful. He will say, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. In other words, Paul is saying, you best be about the work of sanctification, growing in godliness. But then, chapter 5, verse 23, he says, oh, by the way, God's going to do this work in you. <laughs> so who's doing the work? Is it me or is it God? Answer, yes. Yes, it is you, and it is God. As you give yourself to the work of holiness, it is God who says, I am going to meet you moment by moment by moment by moment with my grace. It's why Paul would state in, in verse 8 that he gives us his Holy Spirit. In other words, God's not somewhere out there just kind of giving us a dose of grace, kind of in the moment where we feel really desperate. No, he's actually with us. He is in us, empowering this holiness, empowering this journey of sanctification. So once again, God never calls us to something that he does not supply to us. He never places demands upon us that he doesn't give the grace to us to satisfy. This is the promise that God holds out to us. That this journey, that this work of sanctification, that this process of doing war in worship, this battle, God says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be with you every millisecond of the journey, every inch of the way, and I will be there to provide my grace. In other words, what he's saying, the ultimate work then that is ours to do is, is to be dependent upon him. I'm going into worship, yeah, I don't feel like it, but I'm going into worship saying, God, I'm going to trust that this is what you say I am called to do such that you might begin ministering to my heart and bringing change to my heart. It's, it's the work of saying, I'm going to go to the word to understand Christ, to understand his glory, to understand the greater weight of his worth such that, yes, you might ultimately do something in my heart, do something in my heart that I can't ultimately do in myself. 
to bring the change that he promises to bring. God promises to bring this change to our hearts and lives. So, you can recognize the fact that we are in process, right? This is a journey that's in play right now. So sometimes we're taking our will back because in a large part, this is just part of the journey. We are at war in worship. We've given our hearts away to certain things, certain times. We've become enslaved to it, right? And, and, and now it's this journey of reorienting our hearts back to the worship of God. But God promises that along this journey, he's there every moment to supply the grace that we need. So therefore, our role is ultimate dependence, and his role is grace. So how do we stop taking our will back? Well, simply this. We worship God. We come to discover the greater glory of his worth. Second, we take his warnings seriously. We allow his warnings to, to motivate us to get to Christ. We declare war upon our sins as we see the warnings that he outlines for us. And finally, we claim his promise. We claim his promise that his grace will empower us through this journey. Folks, ultimately, again, God is for your joy. As 1 John 5 says, his commandments are not burdensome. He doesn't call us to himself because of some sort of just kind of giving us some sort of religious obligation. He calls us to himself because he is for our joy. So in closing, here, here's what I simply want to do. I want to spend a moment just in prayer. Specifically for those of you who feel like you're in kind of the throes of addiction, like you're going back to that thing. Maybe in some ways as you've come to Christ, there's been time of, of, of perhaps sobriety or time where you've seen relief from these things. But we know throughout the journey of the Christian life, we find ourselves in really doing it. We're relapsing. We're, we're taking our will back. And so I just want to pray. I want to pray that God would meet you in those particular struggles. But I also want to pray, finally then, that the Holy Spirit would encounter you in power. Uh, in my own life and in my own journey, there have just been moments along the way where the Holy Spirit has shown up in power and accomplished in me something in a moment that perhaps would have taken months, if not years, to see change happen. Sometimes God shows up in the moment and gives us dramatic change. It's like the, we, we, we sense the chains, boom, they're broken. The things, of the, they just don't have the same kind, of, uh, same kind of alluring enticements anymore. They don't have the power that they once had. There's freedom now. So I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would just come, that he would meet some of us. Maybe you've been battling for a long time and you're just like, God, I want to, the freedom. Uh, I, I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit would show up in power and, and, and set some of you free to really give you the experience of, of tasting and seeing that, man, the, the power that once had you is just seemingly gone. The battle's not over, but man, it is certainly something in which you feel like there's been something of spiritual relief. So I want to pray into those two things, specifically for those in the throes of addiction, but also that the Holy Spirit would come in power. So let's pray together. God, I, I, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and we, we thank you. We, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your instructions. Thank you that we don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to sit back and, 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 and kind of debate these kind of things. You've made yourself perfectly clear of what you want for us, that your will for us is sanctification, that we would be growing more and more in the things of you, that we would be learning how to surrender ourselves in worship to you more and more. So God, I, I pray for those who might find like that, that they're perhaps even jumping on this morning with, with, with a heart of, of condemnation because in the past few days there's been more failings. They've taken their will back. They've felt the enticements and they've given in. God, I, I pray that you would do 
a work in their hearts and lives to set their gaze freshly upon the glory of, of Christ. Gotta pray that where enticements have come, gotta pray that you would expose the lies of those idols. Expose the lies. Show them to be what they really are. They don't satisfy. They're just dust in the wind. They're just, they're tasteless. Just ashes in the mouth. But God, would you also then do the work? Even as your word says that your word is, is sweeter than a honeycomb that it revives the soul, that it makes wise the simple. So God, I, I pray, I pray that your word would come alive to them. And not just your instructions, but Lord, as, as you've said, that the written word points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. It shows us his beauty. It shows us his glory. It shows us his incredible love and his pervasive mercy. God, would you help those in the battle, in the struggle? Pray that there would be a turning of the heart. We pray that there would be a discipline of worship so that they might control their body in holiness and in honor before you. God, I pray for perhaps the, the lesser things that we don't necessarily recognize when it comes to this, to this issue of addiction, for the, for the comfort eating, going to food, to satisfy the issues of the heart. God, would you expose those things? Would you expose those things of being true addictions, as being those who... Uh, rob us from the real worship that would satisfy our hearts. For how nicotine will do the same thing, for how alcohol will do the same thing, that we would run to those things to celebrate, we would run to those things when we feel discouraged, that those things become kind of the, the impulses that we run to in order to satisfy the moment. God, we don't want to be enslaved to anything. We want our hearts satisfied in you so that we can rightly enjoy the things that you've given to us. So set us free. Give us discernment. We don't want those things to get in the way of the blessing, of the satisfaction of engaging you in worship. We cannot serve two masters. So Jesus, we surrender our hearts before you. Be the master of our hearts and lives. God, now I just pray, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come. Spirit of God, come in power. God, we, we pray even right now, as soon as we say those words, we tend to get very cerebral. Try to begin making sense out, out, out of the coming of your spirit. What's it going to feel like? How is it going to happen? Uh, are you going to show up and, and, and power and shake the room? Or What's going to happen? God, would we just recognize that you are a God who desperately loves us, who wants to come near to us, who even cries out to us and says, as you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I will fill you. God, we want a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, bring the love of the Father in fresh, new ways upon our hearts where we battle with shame, where we battle with addiction, where we find ourselves taking our will back. Oh, Father, would you drown those desires in your love? Spirit of God, thank you that you are the channel through which the love of the Father is known. So I pray even now, Spirit of God, come. Would you come, rest upon your people in power? Would you show them the incredible love of the Father? What love can just undo so much chaos of the heart? Pray that you would touch us. Pray that you would touch our hearts. Gotta pray that the deep, 
the deep things of shame and brokenness within. Spirit, that you would, you would inform those things with the love of the Father even now. And where the enemy would want to confuse these moments, we, we speak against him in Jesus' name. Spirit of God, have your place among your people. Have your place within our hearts. Show us the love of, of the Father. Show us the greater glory and worth of Christ. What do we have? If we don't have the love of the Father, if we don't have the glory, the greater glory of Christ. God, I pray right now specifically then for the issue of fear. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love. One that doesn't exploit others, but loves. It's self-giving because it's been so satisfied in you. It doesn't have to take from others. It doesn't have to manipulate others. It doesn't have to use others in the wrong way to satisfy oneself. No, you've satisfied and therefore there's more than enough to give away, to love. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and power. Oh my, do we need, we need your power, Lord. We need your power afresh to disrupt these little idols that we've placed upon the throne of our hearts. Do a disruptive work in your power, we pray, to set us free. And God, give us self-control. This is not something we can muster up in our own self. This is, this is uniquely supernatural. It comes from you, Holy Spirit. So you are the one. You are the one who would teach us. You are the one who would empower us to know how to control ourselves so we do not take our will back. But we confess that fear often gets in the way of knowing you. We don't want our hearts to be truly open to you for fear of what you'll find. We don't want to get radical in worship and fear of what others might think of us. We don't want to get very lavish in our love for how others might criticize us like they criticize you, Christ. They criticized you for being lavish and loving. Spirit of God, we do not want to live by the spirit of fear anymore. We want to live by your empowerment, knowing the truth that is in Jesus, knowing the life that alone is in Jesus, knowing this way of freedom that alone is in Jesus. Spirit, come in power upon your people, we pray. It's in Jesus' name.
right, folks, by way of benediction, it comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Grace and peace to you guys. We'll catch you now later on next week. See you then.